The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to hit them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we come to God's word together, let's pray. Father, for many of these, these will be familiar words. But we pray this morning that you will help them to hit our hearts, not just our minds. We pray that you will help us to listen to the calling that you put on us. And Lord, that you will give us the power to respond. In your precious name. Amen. Morning. Um, I'm Mars Goodman. If you don't know who I am, I'm a member of this church and I work at Moncton Coombe School just down the hill. So that's me. Um, I'm really excited about this passage, bizarrely, because um, some of it is quite hard hitting. But as I, when I first read it through, I was like, this is amazing. So... Um, Tim said a couple of weeks ago, as we were starting our series on the Sermon on the Mount, maybe not starting, but anyway, that it's not that hard to understand what Jesus is saying. It's just really difficult to work out how we do it. And I think that applies to this passage as well. Um, at first glance, you might think, oh, it sounds lovely. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies, give, go the extra mile. You know, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile have become sayings for going above and beyond, haven't they? You can sort of see the bunnies hopping around the grassy meadow. Everything's lovely. Except, hang on a minute, turn the other cheek. Someone slaps you across the face and you turn your face so they can slap the other side. Love people who hate you. That's not quite so nice and fluffy. Um, and are we not just asking people to be doormats, to be walked over by everybody? How do we do what Jesus is asking and why would we do it? So maybe there's a bit more that we need to think about. Um, if you've shut your Bibles or didn't open them um, either on your phone or in the pew Bibles, can I ask you to get this passage open because I want us to look at it together. Um, it's on page 970 in the pew Bibles. Um, and obviously there's two sections that Jesus, of, of Jesus' teaching. And both of them start with him saying, well, you've heard this saying... But I'm going to tell you something else. And um, the first one is eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And then love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And both are from the Old Testament. But both have been twisted. 
um, his first hearers would have known these very well. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth started, um, started as a way to restrict the kind of blood feud mentality that was around when the Old Testament was written. Where, where it used to be, um, you hurt one of my tribe, we'll, come, we'll rain down vengeance and destroy your whole clan. And what this, the eye for eye and tooth for tooth was about restricting that rather than saying, you get me, I'm going to get you back and more. It was saying, if someone wrongs someone, the punishment should be just. It should be equal to what they've done. It shouldn't be worse. Um, And it was also about the law and the justice system. It was about when you're deciding justice as a community... When someone has done something wrong, how do you as a community decide what the punishment should be? But it had become, we can, I think we can tell from what Jesus, the examples that Jesus gives right following it, by Jesus' day, it had become a bit more personal. So if you've punched me, I can punch you back. It wasn't about the law courts, it had become a more personal thing. And the second saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, is somewhat of a twisting of what it actually says um, back in the Old Testament. The, the command was to love your neighbor. Nothing was said about enemies. And so I think the first hearers would probably have been going, oh, okay, he's going to be interesting to see his take on this. You know, how's he going to, he's going to explain all of that, um, bring us back to the original meaning, whereas actually Jesus doesn't. He kind of blows the whole thing out of the water. Um, if we look at the examples he gives, we might look at those three examples in, in verses 39 um, to 41. We might look at those and think they're quite random examples. They're just examples of people doing mean things. But then they're more than that. Um, if you imagine, if, someone's gonna, if you're right-handed and you're going to hit someone in their right cheek, the only way to do that is to smack them with the back of your hand. And in that... In, the first century culture that Jesus is speaking into, that was deemed to be the worst insult. It wasn't just physical harm, it was an insult to your honour. And actually, this is carried on. If you, if you think about the Regency period in this country, they, when they were very fond of duelling each other, so if someone upset you, you would challenge them to a duel and then you'd go out and shoot pistols at 20 paces or, or with swords. The, if you were annoyed with someone and you wanted to provoke them into having a duel with you, you would slap them across the back of their face with the back of your hand. And it was, it was deemed to be the worst insult to a gentleman's honour. So it was more than just a physical harm. The second example, now the way it's translated here is, is helpful in us understanding what they're talking about, but is less helpful in knowing what it's really about. So if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, well, we probably have several coats, most of us. We'll have a waterproof one and a warm one. Incidentally, why is it not possible to make a warm and waterproof coat? I would think that this was vital in this country. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, we would have several coats. In their day, the tunic would be your kind of normal clothes that you'd wear, and you'd probably have at least two, even if you were really badly off. The cloak was your outer garment. It was everything. It was, most people would have one and it was the thing that you would wrap yourself up in at night. It was also your blanket, your duvet. It was what would keep you warm and safe. 
And it was so important to them, it was such a crucial garment that in the, in the Old Testament law, if, you, if someone owed you money, wanted to borrow money and you wanted to have like a pledge that they would give it back, you could take someone's coat, cloak, but you had to give it back to them each night so that they could keep warm and didn't dive um, cold. And then you'd take it back again in the morning, presumably until they paid the debt. It was a crucial garment. The third example... If someone compels you to go one mile, go two. Now again, we don't, that's not something that really happens here. But um, it turns out that um, there was an ancient custom, which actually went back right to the Persian Empire, so even before Jesus' time, it was already an old custom by then, of the Persian Empire apparently had this amazing postal system throughout the Persian Empire with staging posts that were all one day's journey apart. And at each staging post there would be food, for the courier and water for whatever they were riding and food for them and, um, and a sort of series of couriers who would take the post throughout the empire. But the law was, now the Persian Empire took over loads of cultures, loads of countries. If I'm, if I'm a courier from the Persian Empire and I arrive and there's no food, I can just go into any of your houses and demand that you feed me, that you clothe me. And if I'm tired and there's no courier ready to take it on, that you have to take the post I can just tell you to do that. And the Romans thought this was a great idea. They enthusiastically took it on um, because it's a great way of keeping the population in their place. And and so in Rome, if I'm a Roman centurion, I can go to you, right, I've got this heavy load to carry. You carry it the next mile, please. And it was law, you have to do it. You have no choice. You have to do it. And so this example is not just about physically doing something This is about the occupying forces rubbing your noses in it that you have no power, you have no authority, and they can make you do whatever they like. In fact, this is what happens later in the the gospel. When Jesus collapses under the weight of the cross as he's being forced to carry it to the place of crucifixion, the Roman soldiers pick out someone from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and go, right, you, pick it up, you carry it. That's exactly what they would do. So these are actually three hugely significant examples. When someone gives you the worst insult, offer them the chance to do it again. When someone wants to take something important from you, your tunic, offer them the most important thing you own. When someone chooses to humiliate you, show you how little power you have, offer them not resistance, but more help than they required. When they take from you, choose extravagant generosity instead of retaliation and again these three examples are not limits it's not like well because if they are we're a bit off the hook I have not had anyone take my tunic recently or make me carry something for them and I have not been slapped ever I don't think so they're not they're not, it's not, ah, oh, well, I have to do it in these three settings and these three settings only. No, Jesus is taking the most extreme things he can think of in their current situation and saying, when we are at our most provoked, when we are most upset, most angry, when someone has really damaged us, offer them extravagant generosity in return. What does it mean to do that for us today? And then Jesus steps it up another level. 
Because at least in those three examples, all you're being asked is to do something. Then he says, love your enemies, verse 44. So now we have to love them as well. Now, you may have heard, if you've been in church a while, you'll probably have heard that Greek has several different words to mean love. There's the word for um, sort of romantic passion, eros. There's warm affection, which is philios. And the word here is used is agape. And um, one of the commentaries I read described this, defined it like this, and I like this. Unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. So we're not being asked to have warm fuzzies about people who are being cruel to us or unkind or hurtful. But we are being asked to have invincible goodwill towards them. Now, I find this, well, challenging, but also helpful. Especially when we think, well, should I be standing up for my rights or someone else's? Um, Our culture culture changes a lot over time. And when I was a child, if you went out to a restaurant for a meal and the service was bad or the food wasn't good... Anyone my age or older would know, what would you do? Nothing. You'd eat the food, you'd go, thank you very much, you'd pay the bill, you'd pay the tip, and then you'd go home and you'd quietly seethe about how bad it was. Um, and I remember once when I was quite, when I was quite young, I was like about, about 13, 14, having a haircut, and it was a terrible haircut. They didn't do what I'd asked. It came out looking awful. I was like... And I was at that age where that really mattered a lot. And again, I went, thank you very much, this is very nice. And then I went home and cried. Um, And I think what happened in our culture at that time is we watered down this. We watered down what it meant to go the extra mile into not complaining and being quietly cross. Which is not what Jesus is saying here. And actually, rightly, I think our culture has turned away from that because it wasn't great. But, of course, the pendulum swings, and then it keeps swinging. And I think currently we've probably swung so far in the opposite direction that we vilify anyone who disagrees with us or has a different viewpoint. You only have to read the news to see some... This person's not allowed to speak. This person can't do this because they believe something different to what is considered acceptable. So if it's not quiet resentment, which I don't think it is, What is it to turn the other cheek to love our enemies? What does that mean? If you are trying to challenge racism and you meet someone who is racist, as a Christian, what do we say? Or if we are trying to share the good news about Jesus and we come across people who are shouting very loudly against it, how do we respond? Or even in church, when our view of some vital issue like the colour of the new chairs, is viciously ignored. What do we do with that? And you might think that's a silly example, but people get very angry about small things. We all do. So what is Jesus telling us to do in that moment? To love our enemies. To choose to have invincible goodwill towards them, not towards their views, but we should take a radically generous approach to them. We would still want the racist to see that every human being is equally valuable to God. We would still want the ardent atheist to come to know the overwhelming love of God, but we can't hold anger and hate towards them for having those views. 
the opposite. We should want good for them because that's what God does. Verse 45, it says, God causes the sun to rise for everybody and the rain to fall on everybody. Now, in this country, we might not always see that as a blessing, the rain bit, but it is because without rain, no food grows. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's what he's calling the people listening to him there to do. Is to have radical love, invincible goodwill to all the people that upset and annoy and hurt us. Ah, hmm. That's a bit tougher. I don't see any bunnies hopping across meadows anymore. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, that sounds amazing, but I don't think I have it in me. There are three things we need to be focusing on. The first is Jesus' next piece of advice, what he says to do after love your enemies. In verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we, need to, if we are angry with someone or hurt by someone, that's the first thing we should start doing is just pray for them. Really practical. The second thing, Jesus makes this comment If we react like most people, in anger and hate, how are we any different from everyone else? Jesus says, even the tax collectors do that. Now, apologies if you work for HMRC. Um, I don't think we see tax collectors in the same way as they did in Jesus' time. Because whilst we might moan about paying taxes, we don't hate the staff of the HMRC, mainly because our taxation system is trying to be fair. We might not think it gets it right, but it's trying to be fair. Whereas that was absolutely not the case for Jesus' hearers. Um, Tax collectors were scum. They were absolutely despised and hated for two big reasons. One is that they were collaborators. Rome had conquered Israel... They were an occupied country living under enemy rule and tax collectors were Jewish people who were working for the Romans. And people hated them. Now, I I looked this up. At the end of World War II, when you had the same situation in France, which was occupied for most of the war, um, over 10,000 people were executed for being collaborators and another 40,000 were imprisoned. That is how people feel about collaborators. The second reason everybody hated them is they were on the take. They were really corrupt. Um, so the Romans would say to the Jewish tax collector, this is, what you, this is what you've got to pay us. This is what you should be collecting. And then the tax collector would just add on a bit, or quite a lot, and make people pay him extra and of course he had the power to do that because he had the might of Rome behind him so he was using and abusing his own people in service of the enemy um, enemy power that had taken them over so people hated them and I was trying to think okay what what is an equivalent today I can't with two examples I'm not sure they're perfect but these are the two that came to mind the first is um the kind of politicians who were partying while the rest of us were in lockdown. And the second, uh, which might feel a bit more removed for some of us, would be the kind of drug lords. Because if you... It appears that quite a big part of their culture is looking after their own. They will look after their families and give them the best life possible. In fact, 
Possibly one reason, one factor in being able to destroy the lives of millions of others is thinking that only me and my family matter. My tribe, my clan, I'll do anything I can to make as much as I can for them, don't care about anyone else. And one of Boris Johnson's, in my opinions, weaker defences of what happened during the lockdown parties was that it was important to thank people who were working hard. Well, yes, but so was everybody else, and they weren't allowed to have parties. And, but he was looking after his own. And so Jesus' challenge here is, if we just do what everyone else does, if we are only good to people who are good to us, if we don't love our enemies, we are just like partying politicians or drug kingpins. That's what he's saying to us. That is what you're like. Ouch. So we need to take it seriously and realise that not loving our enemies puts us in that category. That's the second thing. Um, In 2006, a man called Charles Roberts broke into a school in the Amish community in Pennsylvania. If you don't know about them, the Amish community is a a Christian community who live an incredibly simple life. Um, They make their own clothes. They don't take photographs. They have virtually no modern technology. They're very close-knit, very um, small and contained community. He broke in. He was quite a young man in his 20s. He shot 10 girls, five of them died, and he then shot himself. Hours after learning about what had happened to their community, what he'd done, a contingent of the Amish community came to visit his parents and also his wife. They went to tell them that they forgave him, that they weren't angry with his wife or his parents, that they were concerned about them, They wanted to support them. They did that the same day their children died at his hands. The same day. Now, I can almost get my head around somebody wrestling for months and years with their anger and their bitterness and eventually reaching a place of forgiveness. I can almost imagine that. But I can't imagine how on the same day that you lose your children you can go and offer support and love to the family of the man who did it. And it didn't stop there. Half of the people who went to his funeral were the Amish. And on the day of the funeral, his wife and his family were trying to get to the the church where they were having the funeral. And the press were hounding them. Now, as I said, the Amish don't like having their photograph taken. But they stepped in and surrounded her. With, they put their backs to the cameras because they don't want their photos taken, but they made a blockade so that the, the um, tabloid press couldn't get photographs of the grieving widow and shocked and her horrified children. They protected them. And his wife later said, it was amazing. It was one of those moments during that week where my breath was taken away, but not because of the evil, because of the love. How did they do that? Well, interestingly, three sociologists went and spent time with them later to try and find out how they did that. And what they observed is that this is a community who um, meditate on, sing about, 
focus on on a daily basis, dwell on the central act of Christianity, Jesus dying on the cross to save us. They have absorbed it into their inmost being. Even most of us who go to church don't always make this our central meditation and focus in life. And the sociologist's conclusion was that because that had become so much their, who they were, that that was their reaction was to offer, was to love their enemies. It wasn't a wrestling thing, it was just an instinctive response because they had become like their father. And so I think the third thing, if we are ever going to be able to do this, to love our enemies, pray for those who are against us, is that we need to dwell on Jesus. We need to dwell on him because he did this. When the Pharisees attacked him verbally, he didn't shout back. He just told humorous stories and parables that got the truth in at the side door. When they accused him in court with lies, when they just made up lies in court to try and get him killed... He didn't defend himself and try and get away with it. And when they hung him on the cross, he literally prayed for their forgiveness. And in the, I find it bizarre but amazing, the cosmic exchange that happens at the cross. His love, his forgiveness, his power becomes available to us. So I think we have to be honest about who our enemies are. We might, it's a strong word and we might not think, you know, it sounds like a sort of um, action movie thing, isn't it? And we might think, well, I, I'm living in comfortable, coom down, I don't have enemies. But we do have people that hurt us or that threaten us. For some of us, it might be non-Christians who live a way that we don't agree with, that makes us really cross. For some of us, it might be other people in the church, it might be people in our own family who make us angry for whatever reason, valid or not. But we have to start by being honest about who those people are and realising that when, we, when Jesus says, love your enemies, that is who he's talking about. We need to pray for them. We need to realise that this isn't an optional extra part of Jesus' teaching. That if we are to be if we're to follow him, this is what he's calling us to. And then we need to kneel at the cross and dwell on him and absorb the truth that we were God's enemies. That's who we were. We were God's enemies. And his response to us was to turn the other cheek, was to go the extra mile, to give up not just his cloak, but everything his place in heaven, his glory, his very life to change us from being his enemies, not even just to being his friends, but if you look um, in verses 45 and 48, being his children. So when we were God's enemies, his response was to do exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's why we spend time um, bringing our sins to God and confessing them and asking for his forgiveness is to remind us who we were, who we are and what we receive instead of what we should receive it's why we dwell it's why we have communion as we're going to in a few minutes is to stop and dwell on Jesus 
and see ourselves as we really are. Enemies forgiven, restored, and turned into beloved children. And then we need to ask him to give us the same grace for our enemies, whoever they are. His grace to love them, to pray for them, to have invincible goodwill towards them. Because of Jesus and in his power. Amen.